And of the longest records, the ones going back to the early 20th century or to the late 19th century, which is what the IPCC is doing its detection and attribution on, they're 90%, 85, 90% of them are urbanized. Mm. But that, that is a major problem because it's like it's not human-caused climate change, it's human-caused confounding. I mean, it's literally the destruction of data, dependable data. Happy Monday, folks. And a few weeks ago, I recorded an in-person interview with Ronan Connolly, PhD, and he and many other scientists have been publishing in the peer-reviewed literature the correct integration of climate data and risk. So the links are down below to series-science.com, and all the published papers are there if you want to peruse them. But this conversation is a one-stop shop that goes through the whole gamut, and I think it's just just a fabulous way to become fully familiar with all aspects of this intriguing and rather threatening topic. So, please enjoy. Hey all, welcome to the home of sound science, as always. And today I've met in person Dr. Ronan Connolly, who's from a family of physicists and chemists who have done a lot of work in the whole climate change uh, sphere. Now, they're not climate deniers, uh, they're climate change quantifiers, I think. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, you could say that. And uh, you've got uh, several papers published in the past, going back many years. Peer-reviewed, not so easy. But in the last couple of years, you've actually published peer-reviewed in the physics journal, environmental journals, uh, a lot of your more recent work. So yeah. I think that would be a good thing to start with after you give a brief uh, history yes. of your background. Yes, I'm uh, Dr. Ronan Connolly. I have a personal website, RonanConnollyScience.com, uh, Ronan with the details on my history and qualifications. But since 2018, I've been working with, um, we set up a group called the Center for Environmental Research and Earth Sciences, Series-Science.com. And so I'm working with colleagues internationally and uh, we're looking at climate change. Uh, we are an independent group. We rely on donations. Um, so we're not relying on grants or industry or anything to tell us what, what we're supposed to find. So that's a, a big advantage. It means we can actually look at scientific questions and see what the actual science is saying on these. And that's a good point, actually, that Ceres or Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. Dash science.com. Perfect. And I'll put that on the screen because, of course, you guys, like myself in many ways, are dependent on donations yeah. to get to the real science, as yeah. you described. Yeah, yeah. So, excellent. Yeah, I'd say you mentioned about the difficulty in publishing, getting past uh, peer review. It's, it's like the peer review system at the moment. Mm. It, it's, you can get papers published. But it's a little bit like if you, uh, if you were playing football uh, on a hill. If you're agreeing with the narrative, your goals are at the top of the hill. Mm. And if you're disagreeing with, the, uh, with a politically correct, or, you know, a scientific dogma, then your goal is at the bottom. And you still can do it. Ref, the rule's the same, but it's just a lot harder. But nonetheless, mm. we have gotten... Uh, in the last month since July, we've had three significant publications in different peer-reviewed journals 
One is in the Journal of Applied Meteorology and Climatology, another in Research in Astronomy and, and Astrophysics, and then the other is in a journal climate. So the one that's in the journal climate was a collaboration. There's 38 co-authors in total from uh, 19 countries around the world. And uh, so we, uh, the other paper in research in astronomy and astrophysics was with, uh, I think, 20 co-authors from a similar, it's a similar group, but for the climate, we, it, a lot of other scientists joined in. And what we're looking at is what's called the, in the technical jargon, the UN uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. There, you, you may, a lot of your, your viewers have probably heard of the IPCC reports. If you haven't heard the term IPCC, you might have heard UN reports. Uh, and that, that's what they're referring to. It's the IPCC. And they have a, what is called uh, the detection and attribution of climate change. So that is a fundamentally one of the main uh, things that most people are actually honing in on with the UN report, because the UN report said that there has been uh, warming since the 19th century. They claim that it is very unusual, and they say that it is mostly human-caused. And by human-caused, they mean due to predominantly greenhouse gases, CO2, and then um, that's they, they also have some cooling from what are called uh, anthropogenic aerosols. And so th that's the two parts, the detection of climate change and the attribution of climate change. So the detection is how is the climate changing? And then the attribution is what are the causes? Are the, are the, is it due to mostly human caused? mostly natural, a mixture of both. That's the, mm. the thing. Now, the IPCC, they concluded in each of their reports since before the IPCC was actually founded in 1988, uh, the, a lot of the people were saying it's human-caused. The UN, in their, they, they define in the, the, you know, the, have you heard of the, COP meetings, the COP, the Conference of the Parties mm. meetings. So they're going back to 1995. And so at each of these Conference of the Parties meetings, they don't actually get too much into the science. They have a separate set of terminology that was defined in the mid-90s called the Framework Convention on Climate Change. So at the UN uh, COP meetings, they define climate change as, uh, you could look up the exact definition, it's mm. roughly any change in the climate that can be attributed to a uh, human modification of the atmosphere, e.g. through increasing greenhouse gas emissions. So mm. the UN COP meetings, they define climate change as being human caused. Yeah. It's in the definition. Whereas the UN IPCC, they don't. They have a more scientific definition. It's like a change in climate. Uh, typically, it's hard to define it, but typically a good example a lot of scientists use is we often define climate as a 30-year average of weather. And so if you have a change in the 30-year average from one 30-year period to another, that's a 
climate change. And the main one that people are interested in is what's called the Global Temperature Index. And so that's, uh, that seems to have increased since the late 19th century. That's called global warming. Right. So absolutely, they're the definitions. And just a few thoughts there, because I've looked into this a reasonable amount. Uh, there's so much politics with the UN compared yeah. to IPCC, who are on the surface more scientific. And I noted recently, the recent IPCC report, I think 2021, they went through and pretty categorically said in their own document yeah. that all of these weather events have no real credible evidence they're connected to man-made warming. So I think for viewers, you've seen Guterres coming out now saying we don't have global warming, we have global boiling. <laughs> and you've seen all of the hysteria in the press about the uh, events that are happening. Yeah. And yet the IPCC themselves stay clean and say there's no real evidence. Yeah, well, I would actually encourage uh, your viewers to actually go to the IPCC website, ipcc.ch, uh, and then go to the About page, and then see how they define the, the role of the IPCC. So uh, when I saw the de their definition, I, I, I recall it's, it's basically they define their objective as providing scientific information to uh, government and policymakers uh, that that can be used for developing climate policies, and yeah. so the what struck me as a scientist looking at that is I had been under the impression that the goal of the IPCC reports was to review the scientific literature uh, to find out what is the science saying, and then when I realized no, they actually. They define their goal is to provide the policymakers with scientific information that can be used for developing climate policy. So if the scientific information that is not useful for developing climate policy, that's not under their remit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a classic case of when you make a body, it becomes enormous. It's uh, raison d'etre requires there to be a crisis and you're funding it. Yeah. I mean... You've led the witness to the point that it becomes, I think, absurd. And we've seen this with the revolving door with the FDA yeah. and pharma. We've seen it all. It's, it's human. It's natural. Uh, so IPCC has a mandate. And the mandate is to dig out any or all evidence that ties human intervention to climate change and a strong preference, I would say, unspoken. Uh, the more kind of uh, sensational, the better. It's probably an unspoken rule. Uh, well, actually, they, oh. they, I would say the thing about the IPCC reports is they seem to be intentionally hard to read. Mm. They, uh, the very first assessment report, so they have these assessment reports. So uh, the first assessment report was in 1990. And actually, it was very readable. People could read it. And they, they said, you know, you... It was a bit technical, but if you had any sign of any technical uh, scientific training mm. or whatever, you'd be able to. It didn't matter what field you were in; they were designed to be read by by a large audience. They, at the time, they couldn't see any evidence to say that it was uh, the climate, the warming that had been observed was human caused or natural, because what they said is 
the, at the time in 1990, they admitted in the IPCC report that um, the, if you looked at the, the, the computer models that they were using, they predicted that there should have been global warming. But the climate scientists who were looking at the global temperature changes, they were finding that most of the warming had occurred in the, up until the 40s and there'd been a slight cooling from the 40s to the 70s. Whereas they, and so they were saying, well, the amount of warming is uh, about the right amount that the models say, but the timing is off. So they, they didn't, they were kind of saying, it could be human caused. It's consistent mm. with the amount of warming is consistent with what we would expect. Yeah. But the caveat, yeah, then the second assessment report, they were not able to, they were still not able to do it. But one of the, um, the contributors, uh, uh, he's now quite a prominent scientist, uh, Benjamin Sander, he had been involved in one of the chapters. He had a working paper that he was planning on submitting for peer review which he looked at the uh, using looking at the computer models of the the vertical distribution of temperature changes in the atmosphere and comparing it with uh, balloon measurements of the, what was happening in there and he said that it was consistent with the warming uh, and so the second assessment report they said that on balance, there is a, I think the, you can look up the exact term, but it was mm. basically that on balance, it's, it might be human caused. Then for the third assessment report in 2001, uh, they'd realized that Santer's data, if you looked at it over longer periods, it, it gave the opposite result. Yeah. So they kind of dropped that one quietly. Now he's moved on to other proofs that he, he believes that he's found the fingerprint of uh, human-caused global warming. Fair enough. Everyone's uh, scientists are entitled to have scientific opinions, and we're as scientists, we don't have to agree with everyone with other scientists' scientific opinions. When science is working, when science is working, you should have a lot of scientists with different scientific opinions. When you are only finding one opinion that mm. is allowed, that's not science. Yeah. That's dogma. That's that's uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I, I'm a bit of a World War II buff, but I always remember Patton, General Patton. Yeah. He said, "If everyone's thinking the same thing, somebody ain't thinking." Yeah, yeah. And he knew that. You know, they did. The, the, you just know when there's a consensus, especially with censorship and with uh, derision yeah. of uh, people who are questioning anything. Uh, you kind of know it's, in, in my words and the words of Nick Hudson, a friend of mine, he said it's a scam when you have that. Right. Now, I know you wouldn't say it's a scam, but for, for harder core people, when you see this huge funding, enormous growth in these quangos and bodies, their clear mandate is to find X. Yeah. They can't find X. And over decades, they increasingly manage to find X. Uh, yeah. you you got to stand back and say, okay, show me the data, which is my phrase. So yeah. we might get onto that then. Your papers are beginning to tease out carefully. Yeah. You're not going in saying, hey, guys, I think this is all wrong. Yeah. But maybe tease out in some of your papers some of the fundamental things that are de facto 
demonstrated in your paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, what I'll say is for the fourth, fifth, and sixth assessment reports. Okay. They what they did is their detection and attribution of climate change has relied increasingly, almost. Ex it's the the reason they when you hear global warming is human caused and the science is clear, they're relying on uh, computer models. So what the, from the fourth assessment report on, which was 2007, that was the one they won their Nobel Peace Prize for, it was the 2007 report. And then the, uh, the 2013 paper was when, um, our assessment report, that's the fifth assessment report, that's when myself and my father, we started, we were, uh, started uh, publishing work around that time. And uh, now they've had an, the sixth assessment report, which was just out in 2021. And um, so for them, what they do is uh, they use what are called, for the detection, they're using standard global temperature estimates. And we can talk about that in a minute because mm. it's important. And then, but for the attribution, what they do is they use, uh, they, they get their computer models and there's like 25, 30 of them at this stage. They, instead of making a forecast, normally you hear of uh, models making forecasts, predicting what should happen in the future. What they do is they do a hindcast, which is they go back and they, they rewind the clock on their model to start it, say, in 1850. And then they run the simulation of what should have happened over the last 150 years or whatever. Or, you know, and you, then what they do is they say, how does that compare with what the global temperature index says? So the hindcasts, what they've done for the IPCC reports is they run three sets of hindcasts. One is using a natural forcings only. There's a term they use, radiative forcings. Uh, you can get into the tech, let's just call it factors, mm. natural factors. And then they use, uh, there's a jargon that you see everywhere, anthropogenic, which if you look at the origin of it is human generated, human caused. But if you say human caused, then that doesn't sound as fancy <laughs> and sophisticated as anthropogenic. So whenever you see anthropogenic, just substitute human caused. Um, so what they do is they run their hindcasts only using the what they call the natural factors. Then they run it using only the human caused factors. And then they run it using both. What they found is when they compare the... Uh, Temp their global temperature index to the hindcasts using natural factors only, they can only get a kind of matches up to like 1950s and then their natural factors starts declining and their global temperature index starts going up and up. And so this, then when they repeat it, adding in their human caused factors, they find that it matches lovely. <laughs> so what they say is, therefore, most of the warming since at least the mid-20th century is human-caused. They, they use increasing, they use likely, very likely, extremely likely in each yeah, of the reports. Yeah, yeah. They keep doing the stuff. Uh, but then they say, 
and it's probably all of the warming. You know, they, yeah. you know, but it's 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 like they put in the caveat because they're natural factors only. Canic hindcasts can kind of match. They only diverge really from the fifties on. So that's mm. the basis of since the tw mid twentieth century, and that's the basis of since the. And then there's another aspect which you won't get in, but just because some of your viewers may encounter it, there is a debate on using temperature proxies, which are not direct temperature measurements. So, uh, but these are things using tree rings, lake sediments, mm. and ice cores. So there's a number of different estimates, and they're less reliable than the instrumental records, but there are some that show what's called a hockey stick, where it's the hottest year in a thousand years or two thousand years. There's others that show it was about as warm a thousand years ago, according to the proxies. And then the uh, IPC subgroups say, well, what if we use these flatter temp temperature proxies and then we stitch on top the instrumental, the more precise instrumental one? Yeah. Well, then you don't see as much variability for the first two thousand years. And then you have this little spike. So for our papers, we're mostly focusing on the instrumental record, which is from 1850 to, uh, to, mm. to present. And that's what the IPCC's attribution statement is mostly done at. But they have, they, have, they do kind of say, oh, if we look at a hockey stick graph, maybe it's the hottest in a yeah, thousand, yeah. two thousand years or whatever. So yeah. that, that's, that's what they've done. That, yeah. that, okay, uh, we haven't talked about what I've done, but anyway. <laughs> no, I, uh, that's a great base, though, to work from, uh, Ronan. And uh, why all the way through a lot of what you were saying there, could I only just see Neil Ferguson of Imperial College in, the, in my mind's eye? Yeah. And, and the thing, of course, is modelling. Because I've done modelling and, well, got other engineers who work for me to do modelling and FEA and all that kind of stuff or finite element. And it's useful, but it's garbage in, garbage out. And it is so prone to tilting and twisting when you're only talking about a degree or two either way. Yeah. And your assumptions are, are a huge part of it. Uh, it strikes me that an organization funded to find a problem who switches to modeling and finds a problem. Yeah. Uh, it's understandable being cynical about that. The medieval warm period, they seem to have almost uh, like Stalin... You know the photos with Stalin and the guy beside yeah, him, the photos yeah. no longer. What happened in the medieval warm period and the, the rise that's very similar to recently? Uh, look, we could probably, if you want to have another chat, we can do it on okay. this other one because there's a whole range of stuff. I mean, it's like, it's, it's um, you know, it's not just opening one can of worms, yeah. it's five cans of worms. And, yeah. you know, and the best before date has gone off a little bit yeah. on all of them. I, we could have, if you want, we could talk about that. I'm happy to talk about it. We'll, uh, we'll split it out. Uh, absolutely. You know what? Yeah. Good, good idea. No, Ron, if we go to your papers now yeah. and what you're willing, because you obviously can't go out with very dramatic questioning, yeah. uh, you won't get true peer review. It's just yeah. the way the system is. But in your papers, what are the main things you, you were able to establish safely enough to get peer-reviewed in these physics? Well, it's not just that it's the, the peer-reviewed, which is a factor. As I say, we're playing uphill, mm. we're playing uphill football. Yeah. But um, particularly in, in the, the two of, in, in the different papers, we're doing collaborations with a lot of scientists around the world. We all have different... 
we have different scientific opinions. That's when you're doing real science. So yeah. we are looking for, uh, we are, when we have a perspective myself, I'm like, okay, but like, I think that, and if I talk to people who agree with me, then I, they're going to agree with me. We need to reach out to people that disagree with us. And then we have discussions, scientific debates. That's, mm. that's become a bad word. You're not supposed to debate the science, but that is science is about looking at stuff. Science is just trying to explain observations and, and, and doing it. So our papers, particularly the one in climate that has 38 co-authors, a lot of them have very different views. Like we all agreed with the findings. We mm. all looked at, we all debated back and forth and said, I don't think you can say this, you can say this or whatever. And then we, but it's rather than saying, oh, everyone must agree, let's decide. No, we're mm. like, yeah. yeah, what can we agree on? And then what do we not agree on? And in a sense then, yeah, that actually is perfect because A, it's real science. And rather than forcing a consensus, which we see in cholesterol, fat, climate, and everything yeah. that's a bit dodgy, uh, you're actually kind of moderating what you claim by acknowledging the different opinions and coming to a reasonable yeah. kind of thing. But not a consensus has become a rotten word too. Yeah. But let's actually just get back to your flow. Sorry about that. Okay, so... Um, look, if, if what we found, we had uh, a lot of people, the papers that we've just published, what we decided to do is, this is a work we've been bu building on. So we've actually, myself, I've been involved in 10 papers looking at this uh, since 2015, published in various peer-reviewed journals. You can see, find links on the seriousscience.com or the romanconleyscience.com. Um, there, we noticed that there was two, at least two major oversights in the IPCC's detection and attribution of climate change. So in both of them, one is with the detection and one with the uh, attribution. So the w big problem that we noticed is that the land component of the Global Temperature Index is based on weather station records from around the world. So like you have, uh, they have thousands of weather stations all around the world. When you're listening to the weather forecast and they'll say, like in Ireland, they say Malinhead, Valencia Observatory, and they, you know, they tell mm. you what the temperatures are, wherever you're, I don't know, wherever your local stations are, there's a physical thermometer in in a Stevenson screen uh, box, it used to be the thing that now there a lot of them are automated, but uh, the Stevenson screen that was developed by the father of Robert Louis Stevenson, um, they they record the temperature at about two meters high, and you'd have to get up into this white uh, box, take a reading every day. This is what they used to do. Uh, going back to the 18th century, in some cases, particularly in Europe, and they started keeping these records. If you, what they do when they're calculating the global temperature index is they get each weather station and they say, 
for the long-term average of that station record, is this month hotter or colder than its average? And by how much? And is it plus 0.5 degrees Celsius or is it minus 0.5 degrees? Then what they do is each of those weather stations, they average the anomaly, so this is called a temperature anomaly, relative to its baseline. And then they average all of the temperature anomalies around the world. And then they say, that is the, the, the land, global land surface air temperature measurement for that year. That's the index. So when you say the hottest on record, you hear the hottest year on record. Mm. That's what they're doing for the land component. We can talk about the ocean component separately in a minute. But we realize that the land component, there's a major problem. Most of the weather stations that with the longest and best kept records are located in urban areas or suburban areas. It's a lot easier to staff a weather station for a hundred years near where there are people living. Yeah. It's a lot harder if you go out into the outback or into some middle of some desert to keep a continuous record. So that's, that's fine, that's understandable. But we know, we've known since um, Luke Howard in the 19th century, he noticed looking at London, he wrote a book, The Climate of London, and he noticed what we now call as the urban heat island. Cities are warmer than the surrounding countryside. And uh, the bigger the city and the more developed it becomes, the warmer it gets. And you can see this if you're driving in your car and there's a thermometer and you're driving into a city or out of a city. Just have a look the next time. You might notice that actually as you get into the city, it gets a little bit warmer, a degree or two, than when you're leaving. You have to account for other things like are you going north, are you going south. But mm. roughly speaking, they, they've done these measurements and it's not just in cars. You have people on bicycles with thermometers. You can go right through the cities. You find little bits like in city parks, it gets a little bit colder, then it gets a little bit warmer as you go in. Now, now the thing is, that is, that is climate change, and it's human-caused climate change, but it's nothing to do with uh, CO2, and it's also not global climate change. It's local climate change. So urban areas still only account for less than 3 to 4% of the land surface. And obviously, we don't have many cities in the oceans. So, yeah. so the, if you include the oceans, it's less than about 2% of the global surface. So the weather stations, the, the urban weather stations are sampling less than 2% of the planet. The urban ones are sampling less than 2% of the of the planet and they are detecting this local effect and what we found is that depending on how you define is it rural or urban it's it's a tricky thing because when does one extra building turn it into being urban or mm -hmm. you know it's it's difficult but roughly speaking three quarters of the temperature records are somewhat urbanized and a quarter are heavily urbanized, maybe even 30%. And of the longest records, the ones going back to the early 20th century or to the late 19th century, 
which is what the IPCC is doing its detection and attribution on, they're 90%, 85, 90% of them are urbanized. Mm. But that, that is a major problem because it's like it's not human-caused climate change, it's human-caused confounding. I mean, it's literally the destruction of data, dependable data. If you're becoming more urban and the effect you describe is, is big, I mean, a couple of degrees is no problem when you go into London. You can go yeah. outside it and go back in again and go outside the other side and go back in. You're, gonna, yeah. you're On a warm day, you're going to see it. I, I'd agree, but i push back a little bit mm. because, first of all, it is human-caused climate change. It's in the... It's local climate change. Oh, well, they have actually, you're right, they have not just perverted the measurements or confounded, yeah. they have made a warmer environment. Yeah, 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 fairness. yeah. And then the other thing is that this is an actual, a very important human-caused climate change that we should be addressing because since uh, the UN do these as estimates of the total world, since I think it was 2011, the UN estimates that more than half of the world's population live in urban areas. And these urban areas are getting warmer and warmer, and we're getting more heat waves where people are living, where more and more people mm. are living. And every summer now, in particularly in, in the warmer cities, we're getting increasing heat waves. And then the counter, they say, oh, that's because of global warming from CO2. It's not. It's local effects. <laughs> and you're, you're doing, like, the, there's, you have to separate yeah. you can't, the two components. There's the global temperature changes, and then there's the urban component. So mm -hmm. what we did, so the IPCC acknowledged that there is concern about this. And they have said that, it's less than 10% of the warming on land. And how they came up with that is an interesting digression, but basically they don't have good evidence. They, they're relying on uh, some, unre uh, some studies going back, there was one that goes back to 1990, in which two of the co-authors of the study uh, later wrote out a paper uh, saying, I, I, we don't know how uh, Jones and Al 1990 concluded that urbanization bias is so small because we are finding, with the same data, we are finding that urbanization bias is a substantial effect, at least for China. Uh, but they, the, Phil Jones was the lead author of the, uh, or the, one of the, uh, the, IPCC authors in the, the fourth assessment report, the fifth assessment report, they refer back to the fourth assessment report, say the literature hasn't changed much, and the sixth report, they say it hasn't changed much. So this is like a propagation of a dodgy uh, claim. And there's other papers that are supporting this, this claim. And there's lots of papers, because if you remember, if you are football field, yeah. you know, in the ones saying that urban heat island is, is only a small thing, that's it. You, you don't even need to kick the ball. You just let it, you just, yeah. it'll just roll into the, into the goal and you get published in Nature or whatever journal you want. I have an image there, to be quite honest, of just holding a ball with a magnetic force in it and you just let go of the ball and it rockets to the goal. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, so, like, clearly the bias here in, in this discussion 
I just know from decades in, in, in technical matters and the last 10 years in, in the published research in, in yeah. health and, and metabolic yeah. health, the amount of p-hacking and preferential uh, selective kind of bias in pulling papers is just astonishing in the health and nutrition sphere. Yeah. And this one, as I've more recently gotten into, I, I, I'm almost weak-kneed looking at what I'm seeing. Some of what you're saying and so much besides. Yeah. It is It is quite honestly shocking. And again, I'm not saying it's all wrong, but the sheer amount of it that's massively biased, it just, it is staggering, I would say, I, from what I've seen so far. So there is a nice quote that is, it's, it's, it, it's, people say it's Feynman, but Feynman doesn't, I, I tried looking it up, but it, yeah, yeah I, I think it's the internet. But it's, uh, I would rather have questions that cannot be answered than answers that cannot yeah, be questioned. And that's something like your viewers will probably have noticed. If you've asked a question about somebody that like a settled science, the science is settled. If you actually talk, ask a question, then it's like you get attacked as yeah. if you are like, as if you have horns coming out of your head. <laughs> I, I remember like when I, I like mostly in research, but from teaching, I was I always taught I, I was always told, you know, when a student asks a question, there is no such thing as a stupid question. It's mm. just a question that hasn't been asked. And there's a an old uh, proverb it says, if you if you ask a question, a stupid question, you look like a fool for five minutes. But if you don't ask it, you will be a fool the rest of your life. <laughs> And uh, so people are being actively bullied for asking a question, which mm -hmm. is the antithesis of education, antithesis of science communication. I find it very disturbing uh, when I see people, they'll ask a question. He says, oh, what about this? And then they say, oh, you're, you're probably paid by big oil or whatever, uh, or denier. You're, you're denier. And it's like, it, rather than actually answering the question and saying, you know, that's a good question. We have addressed that. Here is what we're finding. And it's actually a very good question. There are some issues. But we think on the balance based on mm. this, this, this. You don't find that, do you? No, you don't. You find censorship instead. And interestingly, there was a UN lady, I forget her name, but very senior. I could have been in a UN or a World Economic Forum kind of meeting. And she was interviewed. And she actually said the immortal words, literally her words. She said, we had a problem when people looked up climate change, they found all kinds of stuff. And our UN stuff was, was not necessarily at all near the top. So we worked with Google and now all you'll find up yeah. the top is our stuff. And then she laughed and she kind of says, well, you know, we own the science. Yeah. So it was a crazy situation before. Yeah. She said we own the science. Yeah. That's it. We're becoming much more proactive. Um, you know, we own the science. You know, we own the science. That's a scam. Once yeah. someone says that. But it's fascinating. But as you were seeing the, the questions recently, the CO2 Coalition, a website yeah. someone sent me, I had a look. Yeah. And they had 29 or 32 facts on CO2, yeah. and they were very interesting. And I checked the references, and they were pretty much referenced. So I did a short video, and I just went through them yeah. with a bit of sarcasm, obviously. Yeah. I'm me. Yeah. And um, massive attacks, of course, yeah. but no one really dealt with any of the facts.
Yeah. They just came out with the big oil stuff and oh, you're blah, blah, blah. Just nonsense. Don't question. They're basically saying to you, in, in other words, they're just saying comply and listen to the guys in the UN. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Put your brain on hold on this topic. Do not think. Well, look, I just, anybody, just try, but I, I like the, the bullying is uh, online harassment mm. and even personal, you can get like, people will get very angry. And it's understandable uh, when you realize that people have been taught. So since the Rio Earth Summit in, mm. uh, in 1992, the, uh, the UN... I got this agreement uh, that was was called uh, Agenda 21 for the agenda for what we want to achieve by the 21st century. And one of the things was that they wanted to try and uh, encourage uh, to get students, children, to start teaching them from, uh, from, from young about environment and protecting it and basically if you recall i was saying in 1988 the un ep the environmental program mm. had already decided global warming was human cause and we need to do something urgently about it and that was the fcc definition that was founded but they you know before they based on computer models mm. but then they said you know we need to start telling this to kids so 1992, kids, from then on, depending on where you are, like you think Ireland did the Green Schools campaign began in, I think, mm. late 90s on Tashka was involved, but other places around the world, they have different start points of when the, these programs were introduced into the school to try and tell people, to educate people about the science on climate change. Um, and so if you've been to school since, let's say, 1990s, which is a lot of people, including mm. me, you know, you will have been told this from uh, the thing. So, you're, so mm. you've been told this from, from, from like a, a lot of people, particularly like you've been told it from, from when you were in school. And that is, that is classic indoctrination did not have the science at the time to justify it. And we've talked a little on what they've yeah. added since, which is mostly Neil Ferguson-esque stuff, uh, generally, and a lot of problematic measurements. Uh, but that's indoctrination. I mean, that's Mao's great leap forward more than modern, you know, democratic West, the Enlightenment, the debate in science. It, it's it, classic indoctrination. Yeah, you see, the thing is, uh, what we have to be careful is, is like when you ascribe motivation. You see, indoctrination mm. is is a loaded term. Definitely, there are people that are are saying, "Yeah, we need to get them doing it." If we can convince the kids yeah. that then when they're adults, which they are now, they will, we will then be able to do it. But there's other people that are saying, no, we're informing them about the science that we know. And you, you, they believe. And it's like, this is a problem with echo chamber. This is what happens when you shut down opposing views. You think the idea, the, you think that you, are, that you are saying things that are reasonable and objective. Because everybody that you, you have gotten rid of anybody that disagrees with you. 
So the mm. only people that you're talking to are people who agree with mm. you. And they all say, yes, exactly. We agree. This is... Ah. And a that's a beautiful segue into the 97% of scientists okay, uh, say. Okay, so, <laughs> so this, uh, this was a notion before. So this is a lying history of this particular thing. I'm just going to pop in here. And I actually took out the discussion on the 97%. It's really important, but I wanted to keep this discussion somewhat bounded. Uh, so the link to the 97% uh, segment is in the description box below and I put it out as a separate video. It's obviously massively important in its own right because so many people have been misled by that 97% ruse. So we get back to the conversation now uh, and as I say link down below to that separate segment on 97%. There's a, a nice quote by John Stuart Mill in the basic gist of it is he's saying that if you only know your side of the argument, then you don't even know that. Because uh, you need to know what, uh, what people that you're disagreeing, who disagree with you, you need to understand why are they disagreeing with you mm. and what's their reason. If you don't even know why people are disagreeing with you, then... Mm. You don't know if they have something to say. Of course, but it's a very different thing when people who disagree have enough of a point for it to be threatening. Mm. Then active shutting down is not just ignorance and stupidity and being ignorant about the scientific method. It's kind of more pointed and yeah. almost malicious. I mean, Nordengard, I don't know if you, I interviewed Dr. Jakob Nordengard. He mm. did the history uh, of of everything really of COVID and and climate and lots of stuff and the UN back to the Rockefeller Brothers Fund in the forties, right. and one of the most fascinating things in that hour long history, all on the historical record in the archives, not a single frisson of conspiracy theory, everything from the archives, that the Rockefellers essentially organised very important groups who identified climate change challenges and disasters and also pandemic fear as key strategies. And the Rockefellers also, by the by, uh, were instrumental in setting up the United Nations. And, mm. of course, the WHO later, yeah. and the League of Nations, and, and the Trilateral Commission. So again, we won't get into conspiracy theory here, but as an engineer, I was fascinated that Nordenger did what I would do. He was a climate, ponytailed, climate-fearing you know, professor or assistant prof. And when he couldn't get an answer of where the climate stuff came from pre-1990, pre-IPCC, yeah. what did he do? He went to look himself. Yeah. And he fully believed in it. Yeah. And then he just found himself going backwards, you know, reverse yeah. engineering. And he found himself back in the 40s and 50s with the Rockefeller Foundation. And that was it. That was, that was the, he hit pay dirt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So no, there, is a, there is a lot. I think I'm conscious we've been talking a while. I, we never actually got around to the new papers that we publish. We so, will, yeah, yeah, we so, have. So let's get into those new papers yeah, now. Yeah, so this is the segment for the new papers. Okay, okay. So, um, so, I was, so the, this problem about the urban heat island, that was a big problem is the IPCC has said that it's less than 10% of the land component, the land temperature record. And so for that reason, 
they don't bother doing anything with it, mm. essentially. They said, it's fine. That's only a small bit, so we'll ignore it. That's not a good approach. Even if it was 10%, that should be addressed a bit more things. But that's what they've done. So when you hear Global Temperature Index, the hottest year on records, they are including their land component is using urban stations, predominantly urban stations for studying, comparing the 19th century to present. So we try, we have been working ongoing project. This is, we realize this is a very challenging problem to unpack how, what is actually happening outside of the cities because the cities only represent 2% of the planet, 3 to 4% of the land area. How can we look outside? Because mm. that's, if we want to measure global temperature change, you want to know what's happening in the 97 to uh, 98% of the surface. So we've tried to identify regions and trying to be open with the caveats. Every, every In our paper, we go through in painstaking detail explaining all of the assumptions and approximations that we're making because we think that's an important part of doing good science. Of course, people then look at all of the caveats that we're saying and then they, they, they go and they say, oh, they didn't do this. And it's like, yeah, we told you that. We just read the paper. We actually said, look, this is a big problem. So just to give you a thing. There, if you had to look at the rural temperature records, going back to 1850, 1880, almost all of the data that is available uh, for rural or urban is in uh, northern hemisphere regions, and specifically North America, specifically the US, uh, Europe, and uh, some parts of Asia. Most of the, and some Arctic stations as well in, uh, in, in Cy Russia, Siberia, things. Very few of those stations, as I mentioned before, most of the longest records are, are now urbanized. So they have this urban warming over 100 years or however long it is, this extra warming, which will contaminate our estimates of global temperatures. We have been trying to find rural data. So for our uh, paper, 2023 20, paper with the 38 co-authors, we looked at a particular northern hemisphere, rural temperatures, and it's predominantly from uh, the North America, Arctic. Uh, we have once uh, we, we were able to get the station histories for Ireland. We were able to physically, because we're physically there, we were able to go down. And, so we're using that as representative of Europe. We're, we have a paper that we published in 2022, which involved, I think it was like 18 uh, researchers from mostly from Europe. We were trying to find, uh, collect all of the information for the European weather stations. Mm -hmm. We want to do a more detailed project. But we said, actually, this Irish one is good, that we have China. There's not enough Chinese data, but we were able to do urban corrections. When we looked at this, we found a very different temperature record. It's, a lot of it is the same. Both of them are going up uh, and down, up and down. When you look for the northern hemisphere, the standard estimates using all stations, 
it kind of goes up as slight in the from 18 uh, 1800s up to the 1940s and then it's kind of like flat until the 70s and then it goes up again even warmer what we found is that when we look at the rural data very limited it's less than 10 it's only like about 10 to 15 percent of the data but it's it's rural mm. at least doesn't have the urban problem we find similar but it's noisier but it goes up and in the 40s it peaks and then it goes down to the 70s and then it it only goes it goes up now it's a little bit warmer now to the, the 40s mm. but this is shifting from being global warming to global warming cooling warming yeah and and then we said that doesn't match up with the co2 we've showed this it gives a poor match to the things but we said well what about other estimates so we started then looking at other things so we we went and we got the sea surface this is in another paper the one published in research in astronomy and astrophysics so we had two papers published there one in 2021 this new one just been published it's just on the in the press now uh, they should be online uh, soon enough. And they, we found if you looked at the sea surface temperatures, there's problems with that data because it's uh, what they're doing there is they're looking at uh, people in the 1820 or 1920s. Uh, if you had a ship passing, a research ship was taking samples of water, measuring the temperature. And then another group was doing it. And so they say, oh, we took a temperament measurement of this part of the ocean. And then another ship took another one. So they're taking all of these, averaging it together. And there's problems with that. But they find the same thing. Warming up to the 1940s, 50s, then a slight cooling to the 70s, and then warming. And it looks almost, it looks very similar to the rural. It matches better to the rural mm. for the Northern Hemisphere. Then we said, well, what about other things? We said, well, what about... The tree ring proxies, these are indirect measurements. I, I think they're less reliable. Mm. But we got like the estimates for, again, for the Northern Hemisphere, because that's where most of the data is. And we looked at it, we got the average of all of the, the top estimates that were available. And again, this goes back to 800 AD or BCE, or CE rather, mm. 800 goes back. Uh, we have... Uh, but we look from 1850 up to present. Again, you have warming up to the 1940s, 50s, then cooling to the 70s, and then we have it going back up again. It, uh, the, temp the temp tree rings, that only goes back to 2002, so it's a bit shorter. We also looked at glaciers, because everyone hears, oh, the glaciers are retreating because of global warming. It's like, yeah, so some people are using the lengths of those glaciers uh, there have been measurements going back to, in some cases to the 1600s. So we said most of them are in northern uh, hemisphere. So we said, let's see, what do they imply? And they show that the it implies that there was a warming up to the 1940s, 50s, then it starts cooling to the 70s, and then it gets warm. So the for us, it looks like the outlier is the urban, the, the, the land component, which we know, which the IPCC admits that there is urbanization bias. They're just saying it's less than 10%, so we don't need to worry about it. We're saying it's more than 10%. And in a number of papers, uh, independently, have all said, several have said, one said it's at least uh, 12%. 
another set, maybe 40 to 60%. Excellent summary. Now that's, that's, that's perfect, uh, Ronan. Now, just the question that occurs to me, and many did, but we're going to have to compress yeah. this and move to a close. The IPCC are doing uber modeling of massive complexity for decades, yeah. which has more and more told them what maybe their funding would like to see. That doesn't mean they're falsifying. Don't get me wrong. Massive modeling, and they're huge organizations yeah. stuffed with scientists. Yeah. How can they possibly justify saying, oh, let's not bother with that? Because they're including minutiae in the I, Well, if you recall the IPCC's objective, uh, stated objective, when they were founded, was to provide governments at all levels with scientific information that could be used for developing climate policies. So ones that are saying, apparently, it seems, that the studies that were saying the urban warming component is greater than 10%, Apparently, they decided that wasn't true. And it's actually, this is an interesting thing. We did a paper in 2015. This is myself, my father, Michael Connolly, and then uh, Dr. Willie Soon. That I, it might be, he, the three of us, this is our first paper together. Um, we went and we published a paper in Earth Science Review 2015, quite a high impact factor journal. It was cited by a number of people, including. Uh, the the professor who later went on to become the co-chair of IPCC AR6, this is Professor Pan Mao Chai, Chai, and he he said in his paper that soon Connolly, Connolly 2015, had raised serious concerns about the urbanization bias and also about the temperature or about the role of solar activity, suggesting that the IPCC models were underestimating it. Mm. And he said in his paper, he said they should be considered, but I won't consider it here. That was the, the paper, but he said that they were important. Mm. He's aware of this. This is in a paper he did in 2017. In the IPCC AR6 that he was the co-chair of, they, in the chapter describing urban problem, there's just a few little sections in it. The key bit they said there has been no scientific literature published since the fifth assessment report that causes us to even question yeah. whether there has uh, edges more than 10%. And so a journalist uh, for the Epoch Times, he heard about this and he interviewed the IPCC, interviewed me, uh, you know, and a couple of others. In, and uh, he asked the IPCC in that statement, you the you said that there has been no scientific literature to even question it, but there is that 2015 paper. There's other papers, but the co-chair of your organization, he's aware of it. He's citing it. Why did he? Why did they do it? And, and so I can, you can get a look at the exact quote. But he, the IPCC said, "Oh, that the co-chairs are not involved in the literature selection." For the chapters, individual chapters. Jeez. So you will never get a man to question something if a salary depends on him not questioning. I, 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 I will say I yeah. have had discussions. I, you know, yeah. e some email correspondence with Professor uh, Chai, yeah. and he is quite reasonable. Uh, we disagree on the stuff, and I haven't had much, but he's reasonable. I think he and his paper was reasonable. Uh, again, 
stating the assumptions, the caveats. This is an important mark of, of good science. It's when people, when scientists yeah. are aware that there is a different view and they're letting you know about this different view and ideally pointing to it. We're often limited because we can't, we can't list every single paper. But it's like, if you know that there is a key paper that disagrees with what you're finding, you need to let, try, you should try and let the, the readers know about it. That's what we try and do. So Yeah, and that is absolutely crucial because it's a similar point to the, the fundamental you know, scientific method is debate, is discussion, is challenge. And that's another aspect that you actually do acknowledge other science that's peer reviewed and published that disagrees with what you're saying and you can add on that I don't agree with it because X, Y, Z, but you include it. You don't hide it or bury it. Now, in fairness, in a kind of managerial role of co-chair, by all means, it's very possible that afterwards he noticed that problem, but it was too late. Who knows? Who knows? So are there any other key things? Because I know we both have to run now, but uh, any other key things from your few papers? I'll put the papers below and series science.com I'll put the link on the screen yeah you see look I could talk about this for hours as you probably gathered but like uh, the the other aspect so that was the urbanization component was one bit we were saying look if you average together the urban data and the land data with the ocean data you get a, a, a hottest on record and unusual it looks unusual if you just look at the rural component, and if you look mm. at, say, the sea surface temperatures, the glaciers, the tree rings, you get different things. But we were saying, well, what are the causes? So the IPCC and those hindcasts that we were saying, mm. we, they, they say that they run the models, the hindcasts, using natural factors only, natural forcings, they say. And then it's like, okay, so they're, they're doing it. Well, what are those factors? So they only have two. Um, the one is called the, the is volcanic eruptions. So there's if there's a stratosphere, if there is what's called a stratospheric reaching uh, volcanic eruption, if an eruption is so big that it sends particles dust into the stratosphere, then they it's been shown that that has a temporary cooling effect on the on the climate for two to three years. So that is Oman Pinatubo uh, in 1991 was the last one. And then there's been others, Krakatoa, you know, different mm. ones over the years. And so uh, they, they include that as cooling, temporary cooling, using estimates of that. So that's one of the components. Can't explain warming. The only one that could potentially explain warming is changes in solar activity so they use the technical term is total solar irradiance uh, tsi for short and so how do you decide how has total solar irradiance how's the solar activity changed since 1850 or earlier well there's lots of debate scientific debate ongoing debate and a number of the co-authors in in several of her papers have been actively working on this and they've published papers on it um, the IPCC for their fourth assessment report was the first one where the hindcasts were important. They had six estimates. And then for the fifth assessment, 
they dropped all, you know, and they replaced them with four. And then for the sixth assessment, the latest one, they just had one estimate. Now, in our 2015 paper that Padma Chai, Professor Chai was uh, referring to, we pointed out we found eight. Uh, and they, we said the four that they, they had used in the AR5, the fifth assessment report, were all from the same ilk. They all show uh, almost no solar variability. And then they peak in 1950s. And then they've declining going to present. So when you plug that in, you get all oh, natural factors only. You can only go up to the 50s and then cooling. And that's the thing. By using that, their hindcasts, their natural factors only are guaranteed to never find any a warming post-1950s from natural causes. So it's like, okay, but if that is the solar estimate, if that's what the data is saying, that's great. Okay, well, that's it. So it's case closed, except lots of other estimates. So in their 2015 paper, we showed that there was actually eight estimates that we found, and, another, and the four that they didn't consider showed a much bigger solar role. And in, in particular, one of them showed that most of the warming and the cooling. Remember, we, I said that we, mm. in the rural data and the ocean sea surface temperatures, we're finding warming, cooling, warming, not just warming, warming, warming. So the, one of the estimates we found actually matched almost exactly with it. And we said, well, look, there's eight. We don't know. But it's important to note that if we had used this one that the IPCC had used for their fourth assessment report, they just dropped it quietly. They, if they were to use that, it matches very well with it. And then we said that was important. That's why I think. But then we said, well, there's others estimates. So in a 2021 paper, we went and we said we found another another eight. We found another four that agreed with the IPCC and another four that show even bigger roles. So our latest paper, we found 27 estimates of solar variability. And what we find is that if you take the top, if you fit them to the data for the rural data, for the urban and rural, for the, the tree sea. rings, the sea surface temperatures, the tree rings or the glaciers, we can fit almost, uh, between 60 to 99% of the observed warming in terms of some of the solar estimates. Now, if we use other solar estimates, you can explain none of it. If you use the IPCC, you can only explain like 10, 20%. Mm. So it's like, so it, that's why, and as I said before, there's a lot of co-authors on this paper. I have my own feelings about which ones I think are a bit more reliable, uh, but uh, you know, no. we just have to present it. We said, look, there's 27 and there, there can be others. You know, others could be doing it. They're all, when you have such a wide range of views, that's not the time to be forming a consensus. That's the time to be putting all of our cards on the table and saying, look, what do we know? Do we know how solar activity has changed over the last 150 years? The IPCC says they know, but like they're ignoring 
all of these other papers that are giving different answers. So our conclusion of the two papers that we, where we did a detection mm. and attribution, one with 38 uh, co-authors and one with 21 co-authors, one was just comparing the urban and rural and mm. just comparing the IPCC's estimate of solar forcing and that other one that I'd mentioned the IPCC used to use and mm. then they, they dropped it. And we showed that you can get anything from uh, the warming for the northern hemisphere uh, is either mostly human caused, mostly natural, or something in between. Yeah. The other paper, we look at all 27 estimates of solar activity, and we look at all five estimates of global temperature, of northern hemisphere temperatures, and we find that we can explain everything from it being all human caused to mostly human caused to mixture of natural and human caused mostly natural all natural that that that's 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 where we're at that's where the science is at if you actually <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you if you follow the scientific method that is now i i will put in the caveat because mm. if we go back to the mm. ipcc that their goal is to provide scientific information that governments at all levels can use for developing climate policies maybe they feel it might be if the sun is playing a large role, it's got to be hard to come up with a sun tax. Uh, so <laughs> that might be a thing. Uh, but I will say, in seriousness, the urban heat island is human-caused climate change. And it is a big problem. And so we are all being distracted with our climate policies. Oh, we're, we're, we're stopping climate change as if the climate has always changed. But we've been... This, this, uh, these policies that the governments around the world are doing, trying to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, that will do nothing for the urban heat island problem. And the, since 2011, 2011, mm. the majority of the world's population is living in cities. And um, particularly in uh, the developing nations, they're mm. often in uh, warmer climates where heat waves are becoming a bigger and bigger problem. So we should, if people are genuinely concerned about uh, the well-being of people dealing with climate change, uh, the one that where people live, the urban climate, that's where most humans are. The, the climate change that most humans are experiencing the most is the urban climate change and that will not be changed in any way by any of these policies yeah, that are being is. implemented in greenhouse mm -hmm. gas emissions so we really should be trying to figure out how to reduce the severity of heat waves and things yeah. like that in in yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and and unfortunately the reality is you know, the corporate guy side of me looking in on this on the outside, I find it personally pretty clear. That's my opinion. It's all about policy. Policy is all about a global problem that will be addressed with major global changes that will bring in new control systems for the world and will solve a lot of other perceived problems. And improving cities and planting green areas and cooling cities and actually addressing those kinds of problems I think it's literally simply not on the agenda. And sadly, that's just the way it is.
<laughs> so great stuff meeting you in person okay. than, nice to meet you Ivor and thanks for the chat it was an interesting discussion I hope it's it's of interest to some of your viewers as well oh oh absolutely and i love the way you never overstate your position uh and indeed do not get distracted into like you said motives we got to be careful about motives because you can never really prove motives yeah but you can prove everything you've put in your papers and i'll put these papers down below in the description box and series science as well and you guys yeah. need donations to keep yes. doing yes. the proper <laughs> climate yes, work in my yes. mind not the uh biased corporate stuff and uh yeah we'll catch up on zoom maybe again and get into some of the things we just couldn't do today yes. okay in a pleasure thank you great stuff <laughs> well there you have it folks clarity from a real scientist who is properly interpreting data along with all of his colleagues so just a word on appreciation for the people who support me on patreon and paypal and anyone else who can maybe jump in and help with a little support it enables me to go and get these interviews to do the research to get out proper correct science and data and counter the media misinformation because if people out there don't get informed on what the data actually says in all of these issues whether the viral or the climate or the geopolitical banking financial or all the wars we're seeing constantly to uh, support the system proxy wars you know we're in big trouble and so are our children so really appreciate your support and anyone else who can come along and help a little in this kind of battle of our ages i might say thank you <laughs>